0: Section twenty-nine of self-help. This is a LibriVox recording. All LibriVox recordings are in the public domain. For more information or to volunteer, please visit LibriVox.org. Recording by Kat Din in Osaka, Japan. Self-help with illustrations of conduct and perseverance by Samuel Smiles. Section twenty-nine, Chapter eleven, Self-culture, facilities and difficulties, Part two it is the use we make of the powers entrusted to us which constitutes our only just claim to respect he who employs his one talent aright is as much to be honoured as he to whom ten talents have been given there is really no more personal merit attaching to the possession of superior intellectual powers than there is in the succession to a large estate how are those powers used how is that estate employed The mind may accumulate large stores of knowledge without any useful purpose but the knowledge must be allied to goodness and wisdom and embodied in upright character else it is not pestalozzi even held intellectual training by itself to be pernicious insisting that the roots of all knowledge must strike and feed in the soil of the rightly governed will the acquisition of knowledge may it is true protect a man against the meaner felonies of life but not in any degree against its selfish vices unless fortified by sound principles and habits hence do we find in daily life so many instances of men who are well informed in intellect but utterly deformed in character filled with the learning of the schools yet possessing little practical wisdom and offering examples for warning rather than imitation an often quoted expression at this day is that knowledge is power but so are fanaticism despotism and ambition knowledge of itself unless wisely directed might merely make bad men more dangerous, and the society in which it was regarded as the highest good, little better than a pandemonium. It is possible that at this day we may even exaggerate the importance of literary culture. We are apt to imagine that because we possess many libraries, institutes, and museums, we are making great progress. But such facilities may as often be a hindrance as a help to individual self-culture of the highest kind. The possession of a library or the free use of it no more constitutes learning than the possession of wealth constitutes generosity though we undoubtedly possess great facilities it is nevertheless true as of old that wisdom and understanding can only become the possession of individual men by traveling the old road of observation attention perseverance and industry the possession of the mere materials of knowledge is something very different from wisdom and understanding which are reached through a higher kind of discipline than that of reading which is often but a mere passive reception of other men's thoughts there being little or no active effort of mind in the transaction then how much of our reading is but the indulgence of a sort of intellectual dram-drinking imparting a grateful excitement for the moment without the slightest effect in improving and enriching the mind or building up the character thus many indulge themselves in the conceit that they are cultivating their minds When they are only employed in the humbler occupation of killing time of which perhaps the best that can be said is that it keeps them from doing worse things it is also to be borne in mind that the experience gathered from books though often valuable is but of the nature of learning whereas the experience gained from actual life is of the nature of wisdom and a small store of the latter is worth vastly more than any stock of the former lord bolingbroke truly said That whatever studied tends neither directly nor indirectly to make us better men and citizens is at best but a specious and ingenious sort of idleness and the knowledge we acquire by it only a creditable kind of ignorance nothing more useful and instructive though good reading may be it is yet only one mode of cultivating the mind and is much less influential than practical experience and good example in the formation of character there were wise valiant and true-hearted men bred in england long before the existence of a reading public magna carta was secured by men who signed the deed with their marks though altogether unskilled in the art of deciphering the literary signs by which principles were denominated upon paper they yet understood and appreciated and boldly contended for the things themselves thus The foundations of English liberty were laid by men who, though illiterate, were nevertheless of the very highest stamp of character. And it must be admitted that the chief object of culture is not merely to fill the mind with other men's thoughts and to be the passive recipient of their impressions of things, but to enlarge our individual intelligence and render us more useful and efficient workers in the sphere of life to which we may be called. Many of our most energetic and useful workers have been but sparing readers. Brindley and Stevenson did not learn to read and write until they reached manhood, and yet they did great works and lived manly lives. John Hunter could barely read or write when he was twenty years old, though he could make tables and chairs with any carpenter in the trade. I never read, said the great physiologist when lecturing before his class, this, pointing to some part of the subject before him. This is the work that you must study if you wish to become eminent in your profession." When told that one of his contemporaries had charged him with being ignorant of the dead languages, he said, "'I would undertake to teach him that, on the dead body which he never knew in any language, dead or living.' It is not, then, how much a man may know that is of importance, but the end and purpose for which he knows it. The object of knowledge should be to mature wisdom and improve character, to render us better, happier, and more useful.' More benevolent more energetic and more efficient in the pursuits of every high purpose in life when people once fall into the habit of admiring and encouraging ability as such without reference to moral character and religious and political opinions are the concrete form of moral character they are on the highway to all sorts of degradation we must ourselves be and do and not rest satisfied merely with reading and meditating over what other men have been and done our best light must be made life and our best thought action at least we ought to be able to say as richter did i have made as much out of myself as could be made of this stuff and no man should require more for it is every man's duty to discipline and guide himself with god's help according to his responsibilities and the faculties with which he has been endowed self-discipline and self-control are the beginnings of practical wisdom and these must have their root in self-respect hope springs from it hope which is the companion of power and the mother of success for whoso hopes strongly has within him the gift of miracles the humblest may say to respect myself to develop myself this is my true duty in life an integral and responsible part of the great system of society i owe it to society and to its author not to degrade or destroy either my body mind or instincts On the contrary, I am bound to the best of my power to give to those parts of my constitution the highest degree of perfection possible. I am not only to suppress the evil, but to evoke the good elements in my nature. And as I respect myself, so am I equally bound to respect others, as they on their part are bound to respect me. Hence, mutual respect, justice, and order of which law becomes the written record and guarantee self-respect is the noblest garment with which a man may clothe himself the most elevating feeling with which the mind can be inspired one of pythagoras's wisest maxims in his golden verses is that with which he enjoins the pupil to reverence himself borne up by this high idea he will not defile his body by sensuality nor his mind by servile thoughts this sentiment carried into daily life will be found at the root of all the virtues cleanliness sobriety Chastity, morality, and religion. The pious and just honoring of ourselves, said Milton, may be thought the radical moisture and fountainhead from whence every laudable and worthy enterprise issues forth. To think meanly of oneself is to sink in one's own estimation as well as in the estimation of others. And as the thoughts are, so will the acts be. Man cannot aspire if he look down. If he will rise, he must look up. The very humblest may be sustained by the proper indulgence of this feeling poverty itself may be lifted and lighted up by self-respect and it is truly a noble sight to see a poor man hold himself upright amidst his temptations and refuse to demean himself by low actions one way in which self-culture may be degraded is by regarding it too exclusively as a means of getting on viewed in this light it is unquestionable that education is one of the best investments of time and labor In any line of life intelligence will enable a man to adapt himself more readily to circumstances suggest improved methods of working and render him more apt skilled and effective in all respects he who works with his head as well as his hands will come to look at his business with a clearer eye and he will become conscious of increasing power perhaps the most cheering consciousness the human mind can cherish the power of self-help will gradually grow And in proportion to a man's self-respect will he be armed against the temptation of low indulgences society and its action will be regarded with quite a new interest his sympathies will widen and enlarge and he will thus be attracted to work for others as well as for himself self-culture may not however end in eminence as in the numerous instances above cited the great majority of men in all times however enlightened must necessarily be engaged in the ordinary avocations of industry. And no degree of culture which can be conferred upon the community at large will ever enable them, even were it desirable, which it is not, to get rid of the daily work of society, which must be done. But this, we think, may also be accomplished. We can elevate the condition of labor by allying it to noble thoughts, which confer grace upon the lowliest as well as the highest rank for no matter how poor or humble a man may be the great thinker of this and other days may come in and sit down with him and be his companion for the time though his dwelling be the meanest hut it is thus that the habit of well-directed reading may become a source of the greatest pleasure and self-improvement and exercise a gentle coercion with the most beneficial results over the whole tenor of man's character and conduct and even though self-culture may not bring wealth It will at all events give one the companionship of elevated thoughts a nobleman once contemptuously asked of a sage what have you got by all your philosophy at least i have got society and myself was the wise man's reply but many are apt to feel despondent and become discouraged in the work of self-culture because they do not get on in the world so fast as they think they deserve to do having planted their acorn they expect to see it grow into an oak at once they have perhaps looked upon knowledge in the light of a marketable commodity, and are consequently mortified, because it does not sell as they expected it would do. Mr. Tremon here, in one of his Education Reports, for 1840-41, to states that a schoolmaster in Norfolk, finding his school rapidly falling off, made inquiry into the cause, and ascertained that the reason given by the majority of the parents for withdrawing their children was that they had expected education was to make them better off than they were before. But that having found it had done them no good they had taken their children from school and would give themselves no further trouble about education the same low idea of self-culture is but too prevalent in other classes and is encouraged by the false views of life which are always more or less current in society but to regard self-culture either as a means of getting past others in the world or of intellectual dissipation and amusement rather than as a power to elevate the character and expand the spiritual nature is to place it on a very low level. To use the words of Bacon, knowledge is not a shop for profit or sale, but a rich storehouse for the glory of the Creator and the relief of man's estate. It is doubtless most honorable for a man to labor to elevate himself, and to better his condition in society, but this is not to be done at the sacrifice of himself. To make the mind the mere drudge of the body is putting it to a very servile use. And to go about whining and bemoaning our pitiful lot, because we fail in achieving that success in life, which, after all, depends rather upon habits of industry and attention to business details than upon knowledge, is the mark of a small and often of a sour mind. Such a temper cannot better be reproved than in the words of Robert Southey, who thus wrote to a friend who sought his counsel, I would give you advice if it could be of use, but there is no curing those who choose to be diseased. A good man and a wise man may at times be angry with the world at times grieved for it but be sure no man was ever discontented with the world if he did his duty in it if a man of education who has health eyes hands and leisure wants an object it is only because god almighty has bestowed all these blessings upon a man who does not deserve them another way in which education may be prostituted Is by employing it as a mere means of intellectual dissipation and amusement many are the ministers to this taste in our time there is almost a mania for frivolity and excitement which exhibits itself in many forms in our popular literature to meet the public taste our books and periodicals must now be highly spiced amusing and comic not disdaining slang and illustrative of breaches of all laws human and divine douglas gerald once observed of this tendency I am convinced the world will get tired, at least I hope so, of this eternal guffaw of all things. After all, life has something serious in it. It cannot be all a comic history of humanity. Some men would, I believe, write a comic sermon on the mount. Think of a comic history of England, the drollery of Alfred, the fun of Sir Thomas More, the farce of his daughter, begging the dead head and clasping it in her coffin on her bosom. Surely the world will be sick of this blasphemy john sterling and a like spirit said periodicals and novels are to all in this generation but more especially to those whose minds are still unformed and in the process of formation a new and more effectual substitute for the plagues of egypt vermin that corrupt the wholesome waters and infest our chambers as a rest from toil and a relaxation from graver pursuits the perusal of a well-written story by a writer of genius is a high intellectual pleasure And it is a description of literature to which all classes of readers old and young are attracted as by a powerful instinct nor would we have any of them debarred from its enjoyment in a reasonable degree but to make it the exclusive literary diet as some do to devour the garbage with which the shelves of circulating libraries are filled and to occupy the greater portion of the leisure hours in studying the preposterous pictures of human life which so many of them present is worse than waste of time it is positively pernicious the habitual novel-reader indulges in fictitious feelings so much that there is great risk of sound and healthy feeling becoming perverted or benumbed i never go to hear a tragedy said a gay man once to the archbishop of york it wears my heart out the literary pity evoked by fiction leads to no corresponding action the susceptibilities which it excites involve neither inconvenience nor self-sacrifice so that the heart that is touched too often by the fiction may at length be insensible to the reality The steel is gradually rubbed out of the character and it insensibly loses its vital spring drawing fine pictures of virtue in one's mind said bishop butler is so far from necessarily or certainly conducive to form a habit of it in him who thus employs himself that it may even harden the mind in a contrary course and render it gradually more insensible amusement in moderation is wholesome and to be commended but amusement in excess vitiates the whole nature and is a thing to be carefully guarded against the maxim is often quoted of all work and no play makes jack a dull boy but all play and no work makes him something greatly worse nothing can be more hurtful to a youth than to have his soul sodden with pleasure the best qualities of his mind are impaired common enjoyments become tasteless his appetite for the higher kind of pleasures is vitiated and when he comes to face the work and the duties of life the result is usually aversion and disgust fast men waste and exhaust the powers of life and dry up the sources of true happiness having forestalled their spring they can produce no healthy growth of either character or intellect a child without simplicity a maiden without innocence a boy without truthfulness are not more piteous sights than the man who has wasted and thrown away his youth in self-indulgence mirabeau said of himself my early years have already in a great measure disinherited the succeeding ones and dissipated a great part of my vital powers as the wrong done to another to-day returns upon ourselves to-morrow so the sins of our youth rise up and our age discourage us when lord bacon says that strength of nature in youth passeth over many excesses which are owing a man until he is old he exposes a physical as well as a moral fact which cannot be too well weighed in the conduct of life i assure you wrote giusti the italian to a friend i pay a heavy price for existence It is true that our lives are not at our own disposal nature pretends to give them gratis at the beginning and then sends in her account the worst of youthful indiscretions is not that they destroy health so much as that they sully manhood the dissipated youth becomes a tainted man and often he cannot be pure even if he would if cure there be it is only to be found in inoculating the mind with a fervent spirit of duty and an energetic application to useful work one of the most gifted of frenchmen in point of great intellectual endowments was benjamin constant but blasé at twenty his life was only a prolonged wail instead of a harvest of the great deeds which he was capable of accomplishing with ordinary diligence and self-control he resolved upon doing so many things which he never did that people came to speak of him as constant the inconstant he was a fluent and brilliant writer and cherished the ambition of writing works which the world would not willingly let die but whilst constant affected the highest thinking unhappily he practised the lowest living nor did the transcendentalism of his books atone for the meanness of his life he frequented the gaming tables while engaged in preparing his work upon religion and carried on a disreputable intrigue while writing his adolf with all his powers of intellect he was powerless because he had no faith in virtue bah said he what are honour and dignity THE LONGER I LIVE, THE MORE CLEARLY I SEE THERE IS NOTHING IN THEM. IT WAS THE HOWL OF A MISERABLE MAN. HE DESCRIBED HIMSELF AS BUT ASHES AND DUST. I PASS, SAID HE, LIKE A SHADOW OVER THE EARTH, ACCOMPANIED BY MISERY AND ENNUI. HE WISHED FOR VOLTAIRE'S ENERGY, WHICH HE WOULD RATHER HAVE POSSESSED THAN HIS GENIUS. BUT HE HAD NO STRENGTH OF PURPOSE, NOTHING BUT WISHES. HIS LIFE, PREMATURELY EXHAUSTED, HAD BECOME BUT A HEAP OF BROKEN LINKS he spoke of himself as a person with one foot in the air he admitted that he had no principles and no more consistency hence with his splendid talents he contrived to do nothing and after living many years miserable he died worn out and wretched the career of augustin Thierry, the author of the history of the norman conquest affords an admirable contrast to that of constant his entire life presented a striking example of perseverance diligence self-culture and untiring devotion to knowledge in the pursuit he lost his eyesight lost his health but never lost his love of truth when so feeble that he was carried from room to room like a helpless infant in the arms of a nurse his brave spirit never failed him and blind and helpless though he was he concluded his literary career in the following noble words if as i think the interest of science is counted in the number of great national interests I have given my country all that the soldier mutilated on the field of battle gives her whatever may be the fate of my labors this example i hope will not be lost i would wish it to serve to combat the species of moral weakness which is the disease of our present generation to bring back into the straight road of life some of those enervated souls that complain of wanting faith that know not what to do and seek everywhere without finding it an object of worship and admiration Why say, with so much bitterness, that in the world, constituted as it is, there is no air for all lungs, no employment for all minds? Is not calm and serious study there? And is not that a refuge, a hope, a field within the reach of all of us? With it, evil days are passed over without their weight being felt. Every one can make his own destiny. Every one employ his life nobly. This is what I have done. And would do again if I had to recommence my career. I would choose that which has brought me where I am. Blind and suffering without hope, and almost without intermission, I may give this testimony, which for me will not appear suspicious. There is something in the world better than sensual enjoyments, better than fortune, better than health itself. It is devotion to knowledge. End of section 29: Recording by Kat Din in Osaka, Japan.